Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, Joe, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old in the house, and, uh, and, I, and I grew up with two younger siblings, so I'm pretty familiar with whining. I imagine you're pretty familiar with whining as well. You know, I don't have kids, but I was once a kid myself and uh, familiar with whining from a personal perspective. And also, uh, I I had a younger sister, and so I heard some whining there Mm -hmm. and, of course, whining from the other kids I knew. Uh, I actually just heard some whining recently, I think, when... It was Halloween, and there were, I don't know, maybe you can judge whether this was whining or not, uh, uh, listeners at home, on, on Halloween night. It, it was a wonderful occasion when all the Stuff to Blow Your Mind people got together at my house. So uh, Robert was there with his child, and Noel was there with his child, and Christian was there with his serial killer mask. <laughs> and uh, and at one point, I remember, I think there was some disagreement between parents and children about whether it was time to go or oh, not. Oh, yeah. Then you definitely heard whining. Was uh, there whining there? Yeah. I'm not sure how to classify it. There's so much whining in my life at this point. I, it's hard for me to remember specific incidents of whining unless it's, unless the material being whined about is, is really, you know, sets itself apart. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I feel like I'm constantly saying, well, what's a nicer way to say that? Or I can't understand you when you talk in that whiny voice, which is one of those things that I, specifically remember hearing my parents say to my younger sisters growing up. No, of course they were lying to you because they could understand you. They just didn't want you to do it anymore. Right. It's like the way that you were phrasing that is so irritating and just so grating on my sanity that I cannot acknowledge it. I refuse to listen to you while you are talking in that whiny voice. So today we're obviously going to be talking about the science of whining. And and whining actually does turn out to be a kind of interesting feature of human communication. What is whining and how is whining different from from talking, from crying, from all the other ways we communicate? Well, it's often described as a combination of, of several different things. So there's an element of pleading to it, demanding, pestering and nagging that escalates in pitch. It begins uh, during infancy and peaks. Luckily, it's good to know for me that there is a peak to it uh, between 2.5 and 4 years of age. You know, it's funny because they say they say it peaks, but I've read in some of the studies that we're referencing in this episode that whining never really stops. Like no. you, you carry it into adulthood. Yeah, I think it's just that most adults learn to curb it and know that it sound that they're ultimately humiliating themselves if they're whining about something. And uh, for the most part, it is uh, a child whining at a caregiver, but ultimately anyone is fair game. Well, usually I think whining goes up, right? You don't whine down. The right. parent doesn't whine at the child. The boss doesn't whine at the employee. I mean, maybe they would, but most mm-hmm. of the time the whining goes up the superiority chain. Yeah, though I've definitely heard kids whining at other kids. I didn't want you to take that, that sort of thing. I wanted to play with that, et cetera. It, well, it comes from a from a perceived position of disadvantage. Yeah. You know, say like, I've been, I've been taken advantage of. I've got to whine at the person who who, at least for now, has the upper hand. Right. Like a whining at another child is generally immediately followed by whining at the nearest caregiver to point out the slight that just took place. Yeah, yeah. She, she took a sip out of my Coke. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. She has to give me hers now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, it's everything. Like, I wanted to be the one to get the fork out of the drawer. I wanted to be the one to do this. I wanted to be the one to do that. It just goes on forever. Yeah. I can't find my shoes. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I was interested in how whining compares to other methods of communication. And I actually found a study from 2011 that looked into this. It sort of tried to categorize different modes of attachment communication. That's something that uh, that often gets brought up, a term, this attachment communication, because it's not so much something that's likely to occur between strangers. It's sort of a communication between child and caregiver, or it uh, plays on an existing relationship. But uh, the paper was called Screaming, Yelling, Whining, and Crying, Categorical and Intensity Differences in Vocal Expressions of Anger and Sadness in Children's Tantrums. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, so it was a 2011 study that tried to categorize the different types of noises young children make while throwing tantrums, and they used high-fidelity audio sampling of natural emotional episodes. So instead of having people try to whine... And then listening to what that's like, they tried to say, okay, catch some kids whining in the wild, and <laughs> what does it sound like? And uh, it, it groups together under a couple of categories. They have an anger category, which includes screaming and yelling. And then they have a sadness category that includes fussing, whining, and crying. And fussing, whining, and crying ultimately end up being categorized as three stages of escalating intensity in sadness. So you've got a sadness episode that's mounting, and it starts with fussing, which they describe as typically short, flat, or falling melody, relatively quiet, and low-pitched. So... (laughs) Then you move up to whining, which they say typically contains some verbal content with an up-and-down melody, may also include relatively shrill, monotonous, nonverbal vocalizations. And then, of course, you go to the old classic crying. is relatively loud and effortful, typically with up-and-down melody. Breath may be interrupted, as in sobbing, similar to an infant's cry. So th- they put whining here in the middle of this spectrum of escalating sadness. I, I don't know what you'd think about that as a parent yourself. I mean, do, do, does that ring true to you? Um, yeah, I, certainly I can see crying's position making sense, but whining and fussing is some, sometimes I feel like that's kind of a toss up because it kind of comes down to can I talk you down from a whine or down from a fuss more e- easily. Like which 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 is the shorter uh, shorter route connecting it to normal modes of communication and behavior. Uh-huh. And God, I feel like maybe whiny is easier for me to to uh, to deal with than fussy. Huh. I don't know, but it's kind of, it's kind of a toss up. I'm going to have to think about it uh, during my interactions. Uh, from here on out. Yeah. Take a scientific approach to your child's low intensity distress. Yeah. And I've been, I'll have to ask him, is that, is, now, is this a fuss or a whine? I need to know for the research. <laughs> oh, and another thing I just wanted to say was that uh, numerically in that study I just looked at, ac- across the course of it, they recorded uh, 13 different children featuring multiple tantrums. So there were a bunch of different vocalization incidents recorded. They found that whining was by far the most common of these five vocalizations, yelling, screaming, fussing, whining, and crying. There was way more whining than anything else. That sounds about right. <laughs> but surely somebody has uh, tried to come up with a sort of scientific theoretical explanation to explain 
the nature of whining, where it comes from, evolutionarily speaking, and, and how it fits into the broader spectrum of human communication and, and caregiver to uh, caregiven communication, yeah. <laughs> caregivee to child. Yeah, indeed. And there have been uh, at least a couple of good studies that we're going to discuss here. Um, the first of which uh, concerns motherese. Mother, or- motherese as in like Chinese... Uh, like a language? No, well, yeah, yeah, essentially. Uh, the more technical term is child-directed speech, or CDS. Motherese is the annoying way that you might hear not only a mother, but a father, any kind of caregiver, mm-hmm. speaking to a child in their charge. So it's sort of a colloquial name, like baby talk. Right. It's it's kind of like baby talk. Um, the... And, and it's it's similar in many ways uh, to whining. The two modes of speech seem to have a lot in common, though motherese plays a definite role in attachment. So motherese, an example would be like, hey, honey, I really need you to see about getting your socks on. Hey, honey, we don't actually wear socks like that in this house. So those would be two examples of motherese. Um, and, and hopefully when you encounter it, you're not encountering an adult speaking to you in this way because then that, that can be even extra annoying. Okay, so I'm trying to note the uh, the sort of acoustic or, or sonic characteristics of what you just did for, for the child-directed speech. One of the things was that it was slower than you normally talk. Yes. You put a little more space in there, and it sounded a little bit higher, like you're elevating your pitch. Yeah. What, what's the other thing? It almost has kind of a melody to it, right? Yeah, it, there's a there's a, a melodic aspect to it, uh, and in early development, they, it's uh, believed that the ma- melodic maternal speech functions uh, uh, more to to elicit and maintain attention uh, by accommodating the the infant's uh, very limited auditory and cognitive capabilities. So, it, in a sense, the just the, the melody is being used uh, as a way to uh, modulate the infant's affective state without having to depend as much on the actual language. Like, really, the language is as much there for the, the, the parent that's speaking uh-huh. as anything. Okay, so those things we just mentioned in the in the scientific terms would be what, what they call uh, slowed production, so slower talking, mm-hmm. increased pitch, and then um, they say, quote, often flows into smooth, exaggerated pitch contours. Yeah. That's the melodic nature of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, you think of nursery rhymes, too, in this case, except nursery rhymes are even more melodic and, and ultimately musical. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, but it doesn't, in a nursery rhyme, it doesn't necessarily matter for the young child what is being said, which is why one of the reasons why so many nursery rhymes have horrific imagery in them about animals pecking out each other's eyes. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, the the idea here is that motherese also serves as a scaffolding uh, for the early sta- stages of language acquisition. The actual words are irrelevant, but uh, the melodic tone is key. Okay, so they sort of use uh, like a, a parent would use this child-directed speech pattern to to manage or maintain the child's uh, emotional or affective state. Yes, yeah, so yeah, it's about getting their attention, and you know, thinking back, like in in my home we we try as much as possible to speak to our son uh, more or less like he's an adult you know to uh-huh. to not really do a bunch of this motherese but you find yourself doing it especially if you need to captivate their attention you just fall back on it but that's interesting then do you feel like w- when you're when you're inexorably drawn toward using motherese or child directed speech does that feel like a cultural thing to you, or do you do you feel like that's in your bones, that's in your DNA? Is it a, a, a 
function of your evolution? I mean, maybe both, because I, because as I'm saying it, I'll realize, hey, this is, I remember my, my, my mom or my dad having to talk like this with, if not, if not with me, then at least with my younger sisters. Uh-huh. If I'm having to say, hey, Bastion, I really need you to get your clothes on right now and go. I, I, I really don't like having to talk to you like this in this crazy, weird sing-song voice. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It, feel, it feels as much uh, a part of background as anything, but maybe it has um, evolutionary uh, cues as well. But, you know, one of the things about the child-directed speech that I saw come up in the literature was how you would use different types of, of melodies or uh, sort of... Uh, uh, tone contours or pitch contours to signal different attitudes toward yes. the child. Yeah. So on one hand, there's uh, consistently rising contours that are all about just electing attention, and that yeah. would be like, like, hey, buddy, it's time for us to see about uh, getting our shoes on so we can leave for today. And then there's uh, parents uh, prohibiting something, and then you see faster rising contours, which would be again like. Now, Bastion, we really don't wear socks like that in this house. So as you can see, it's still that very much that signature motherese style, but uh, uh, faster rising contours. Huh. Oh, man. As an outsider, I give that a Dr. Spock fascinating. <laughs> but it, so we got to bring it back to whining. What is the link between child-directed speech and whining? Well, there's a 2005 paper titled Whining as Mother-Directed Speech. Uh, and this it, it explored this uh, connection or the potential connection. And this was published in In and Child Development, and it's the work of Rosemarie I. Sokol, Karen L. Webster, Nicholas S. Thompson, and David A. Stevens. Uh-huh. So what they did is they uh, took 18 undergrad students, 7 males and 11 females. They were, these were all non-parents, uh, because previous studies had, had demonstrated that there was an equal effectiveness of whining on non-parents. Right. And we'll actually you discuss You don't have to have kids later. yourself. It's yeah. just, it'll get your brain. It'll still get you. There's no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so they exposed uh, these individuals to stimuli of six renditions of the sentence, I want to go to Boston, <laughs> each spoken by both a male and female. And uh, the rendition, these were the, the modes of each rendition. There was whining. I want to go to Boston. All right. I think that was good. And then uh, there's just the neutral, I want to go to Boston, which I'll supply. I want to go to Boston. Well, there you go. You got it. You got it for me. I'll do oh, the, no, no. I'm sorry. No, 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 I no. I didn't no, realize. No, no, you, no. I'll do the next one. Boasting. I want to go to Boston. Someday I will. All right. Now, demanding. Give me a demanding. I want to go to Boston. I want to go to Boston. All right. And then the next one, question, that would be, uh, I want to go to Boston? And then finally, anger. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go to Boston. Yeah. There you go. That was a little whiny. Okay, give me more on. anger. I want to go to Boston. No, there you go. That, uh, a little I'm not whiny. very good at it, I guess. Uh, let me give it a try. I want to go to Boston. Right. Still a little whiny on my part, though. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll have to work that out in the actor's studio later on. Uh-huh. But, uh, but so what they did is that they, uh, yeah, they, they unleashed these different renditions. <laughs> now, they, one of the funny things was they didn't actually have kids doing it, right? It was right. young adult whiners. Uh, and they said, quote, Experience tells us that whining speech, like attachment relations, does not disappear with the onset of adolescence and adulthood, but continues to be used with intimates at any age. 
Yeesh. So, yeah, so they said that it's employed in any attachment partner or uh, to superior figures in a power relation. That's tying into the superiority thing we were talking uh, uh, about earlier. Whining goes up the chain. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they said adults were used because they could supply the proper stimulus scripts better than children. So in each one of these, they also uh, featured a stimulus sentence. So what what is being said? What is happening that would elect this response with its appropriate emotional flavoring? Um, and then uh, the volunteers were asked to judge the similarity of 22 pairings, um, again, of the various uh, the various uh, stimuli related to going to Boston and 66 p- combinations of the 12 statements. So this uh, following this, there was a descriptive rating procedure in which uh, the volunteers had to rate the 12 statements in terms of various qualities such as urgency, anger, loudness, etc. Uh-huh. And then they also took acoustic measurements of everything as well. And they then they piled all this together into a 3D model of the resulting data. Uh, and uh, this is what they found that whining speech shared with motherese. Exaggerated pitch contours, specifically of a rising pattern, okay. increased pitch, and slowed production in relation to adult-directed or neutral speech. Okay, so that sounds like it, it matches the main things we observed earlier when talking about child-directed speech. Yeah. Interesting. So, in a way, but, huh, I don't hear it in my head. Though I can see how it would be true, I don't. I don't equate when an adult talks to a child in child-directed speech. That doesn't sound like whining to me. But I can see how it shares uh, how it shares physical similarities. Yeah, well, because the parent typically has order and reason on their side, and the child almost exclusively does not. The, ch- <laughs> the, the parent is saying. I need you to get dressed so we can go to this thing that we go to every day at the same time and you inevitably have to go to. And the child is claiming, no, I want to eat ice cream first before breakfast. I, the, the child is making this ridiculous is statements. Yeah. yeah. Is fussing, uh, is whining about something that's completely pointless and, and, and has no reason or order on the side of their argument. Now, one of the things we talked about earlier was why it's, it's hypothesized why mother, motherese or child-directed speech sounds this way. And originally one idea was to accommodate the infant's underdeveloped auditory system. Right. Uh, but, but they talk about how, uh, whining is directed at adults with fully functioning hearing. You know, adults whine at each other sometimes. So the authors speculate that if we toss out this older hypothesis, and just say that both whining and motherese exploit inherent sensitivities in the human nervous system, that might make sense. Yeah, uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's it's about what what mode of communication is going to elect the most response. Yeah. And it's going and, and a whining child cannot be ignored. Um or a whining child can be ignored but at great difficulty. Yes, it certainly cannot be ignored. I mean, I have had the experience being out in public and hearing somebody else's child whine and it's just uh i mean it's utterly attention stealing you you can't (laughs) think about anything else while it's happening you know and here's something interesting it's easy again the parent is coming from a side of reason and order and the child is generally speaking on behalf of chaos Uh and uh and, and just unreasonable nonsense and yet 
Um, according to a 2012 Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology study published in the American Psychological Association, children as young as three can distinguish between pure whining and a legitimate need for assistance and or sympathy. So they can they can deduce whether somebody's whining is justified. Yeah, like one kid is whining, the kid standing next to them can probably tell that it's BS. Okay, how did, a, how did they test this? Okay, they took 48 children and they split them evenly between girls and boys from 36 to 39 months old. And then they recorded reactions of each child as he or she witnessed an adult acting upset in one of three contexts. Uh, when the distress was justified, that's due to physical harm, material loss, or unfairness, when it was unjustified, and when the cause of the distress was unknown. Okay, so they had something like um, an adult getting an unfair distribution of toys, like marbles. Exactly, or yeah. Or, I liked this one, an adult getting their drawing cut in half with scissors. They drew something and somebody <laughs> cuts it up. Or an adult getting uh, getting a toy chest lid, knocked, getting knocked on the hands with it, so getting injured. Yeah, or losing a balloon was another one. Newly yeah. acquired helium balloon floats up and it's gone. Okay, so those are the justified ones. Yeah. But there are also unjustified things where nothing really bad happened to the adult. Right. But the children could tell the difference. Yeah, they could they could level the the amount of character judgment, threat assessment, emotional assessment, and empathy necessary to say, "Hey, you're getting upset over nothing," uh-huh. or "Yeah, that's awful. Your balloon balloon just totally floated away. That's a bummer, man." So let's say you, you've got a child with two balloons and an adult with one balloon. The adult loses the balloon. Does the child give one of the one of the one of his or her balloons to the adult? Well, that might depend on. Whether they saw the adult overreacting to nothing earlier or whining in response to something legitimately unfair happening to him or her. Yeah, in the, in the case of balloon-related stress, the child would offer a balloon more quickly to the adult if uh, the child had previously seen that adult upset uh, due to true harm rather than a mere inconvenience. That's interesting that that a child has that level of judgment. But also, this makes a distinction between legitimate whining and illegitimate whining. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about that because a funny thing I discovered when I was trying to find scientific research on whining is that a lot of the journal articles you can find about whining seem to be coming from a business management or business philosophy perspective. Uh-huh. I don't know if you came across this. I did. I, I certainly came across a lot of uses for the word uh-huh. whining that were not related to uh, to childhood development. As in meaning that whining is a non-productive expression of distress. And that sort of fits with how I would use it colloquially. colloquially. Like if I'm not talking about the way a child develops, but if I'm just talking about an adult whining... It's a it's a person who's just they're not getting anywhere. They're, they don't have a legitimate complaint. They're just eh, you know they're just being distressed for no good reason. Obviously, we all agree that that a person, an adult or a child, can cry to signal a meaningful deprivation or violation. Something bad has happened that that actually matters. And they will cry about that. But can a whine signal the same? Or is a whine fundamentally inherently unjustified? And if there's a good cause for it, do we call the whine something else? Yeah, I I found myself thinking back on various outbursts uh, from my son 
trying to decide, okay, I remember him whining about this. Was that justified? And I'm really having a hard time thinking of a case where the whine was justified. The only possible example I can think of, and and not specific example, but there may have been times where there's been a slight to him by accident, sort of like, say, I didn't give him a, you know, a snack uh, when I'm handing them out just because I overlooked him and he catches on to that. He might have whined about it. But for the most part, things that are legitimately worth getting upset about, like the cat scratching him, are going to instantly go to like a fuss level or a crying level of outburst. Huh, but if we go with the, uh, the, the escalation from earlier, the whine is in the middle. So it's either lower as a fuss or higher as a cry. Or do you not go with the same escalation? I'm I'm not sure I completely buy the that escalation graph. I feel like it might be a, a slightly different or more complex roadmap. Because yeah, like if the cat scratches him, he's not going to say the cat scratched me. He's going to outburst about it, or like he's going to be more likely to whine and say something like, like the cat's sitting in my spot on the couch, and I don't <laughs> like that. So I don't know if that's helpful or not. But anyway, you got to stand up to that cat. Yeah, you got to look that cat right in the eye and say. You have four legs. The couch doesn't belong to you. Yeah, well, good luck, because the cat has the claws. Okay, well, let's look at exactly how annoying whining is, according to science. Yeah, and I think this is a, a good one to hit uh, last of all in this uh, episode, because it really helps us to underlie the raw power of whining. Mm-hmm. So there's a 2011 study uh, that came from uh, psychologists from Sunny and Clark University, published in the Journal of Social Evolutionary and Cultural Psychology. And this is, this involves at least one of the same researchers for, that we we talked about earlier, uh, Rosemary Sokol Chang. Yes, it, it does. And I believe uh, Nicholas S. Thompson as well. Yeah. Um, the t- title of the article, Wines, Cries, and Motheries, Their Relative Power to Distract. <laughs> so the researchers set out to see if humans, including non-parents, are hardwired to be more attuned to whining. So this is how it all broke down. Volunteers were asked to try and complete a set of math problems while wearing headphones. And six different soundscapes were pumped into those headphones. You had toddler whines, you had baby cries, you had motherese, you had two adults in a normal conversation, you had a screeching table saw, and then you had the deep sound of silence. And you had Lou Reed's metal machine music. <laughs> that would that would have been an interesting uh, addition. So, and also just to, to drive home too, all actual speech was in the was in a language unfamiliar to the volunteers. So okay, that way, so they couldn't be semantically distracted. Right, they like had the, had to be based in the pitch and uh, and just the sound, the acoustic qualities of the sample. Yeah. Couldn't be that the words themselves were captivating. Right. So this were, these were the results. Volunteers completed the fewest problems and made the most mistakes while trying to block out the sign of a, sound of a whiny infant. Mm. This was regardless, regardless of gender or parental status. The error rate was nearly twice that of trying to work with a screeching table saw. <laughs> uh, and it's also worth noting that motheries and baby cries were also fairly distracting. The researchers posited that this demonstrates an evolutionary importance of whining to attract attention uh, of a parent or caregiver. Well, that's interesting to compare because so obviously whining commands our attention. But as the last study showed, we can uh, even children and probably much more so adults can easily recognize the I don't know what you call it, the the lack of importance or the, the lack of justification behind lots of whining, if not all whining. Yeah, and I feel like this is where it's important to 
to focus on something that psychologist Glenn Gare of Evos pointed out, and that there's likely a naturalistic fallacy at play here. So just because this, this is the idea that just because something is a natural product of our evolution, it doesn't mean that it's a good thing. Oh, this uh, is a, this is a common reaction I see to uh, to I don't know studies about human nature, or human evolution, or or speculations based in evolutionary psychology is that. They sort of point out uh, humans' tendency to do something that we don't like as uh-huh. natural, and then people react like, oh, whoa, so you're saying it's good? Well, no. I mean, natural yeah. doesn't mean good. Lots of natural things are bad. Yeah, so in this case, uh, it would. this is basically my, my take home on it. If you're looking at it, uh, based on the information we've discussed here, based on the caveat that it, it may be a naturalistic fallacy, something that's... It's a product of our evolution, but not necessarily helpful in and of itself. It sounds to me like crying, of course, is a necessary means by which an infant, young child, or even an adult alerts others to its dire need, and that whining and mother ease, to a certain extent, are essentially crying poured into the mold of language. Mm. It becomes a mode of speaking and a way to bait our words with the unignorable power of a crying infant left out in the cold. So... Anytime you hear a caregiver and a child speaking to each other, it's essentially two individuals crying at each other with words. Man. That's, that's my, my take home on all this. That's profound. Yeah, or <laughs> disturbing, you know. That it's just a, a grown up and a child just crying at each other. Uh-huh. But it's crying that's complicated by language. Well, I imagine that's a lot of what's happening a lot of the time in a, in a household with children. Because, I mean, the the presence of children just ups the stakes in, in every possible way, right? Like suddenly, uh, when you've got a kid with you, things that would normally be maybe a little bit frustrating can become dire. You know, suddenly this <laughs> is so important. Yeah, and then everything's just harder. Getting out the door, harder yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, you saw when uh, I was over there for Halloween uh-huh. Bastion, just getting back out of out of your house. And leaving for the evening is is this this whole ordeal that has to be coordinated with uh, with 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 Noel and his daughter leaving. So uh-huh. we're both leaving at the same time, so that uh, nobody's so it's being not cheated. Unfair. Yeah, yeah, it's not unfair. Everybody's got a completely equal shake in the end of Halloween. You know, I was wondering about the question of why inherently we find whining and crying so unbearable. Like you'll do anything to make it stop. Uh, and you see this a lot of times, parents just caving into what seem like ridiculous demands from their children just to make the whining stop. And I wonder, I mean, one obvious thing is that it's fear of social embarrassment, right? Like mm-hmm. you're out in public and your kid starts whining and, you, you know, you're you're embarrassed. Everybody's looking at you. You feel like you're annoying everyone and, and that's a problem. But it seems like uh, this would only make sense for whining and crying in public. Uh, public situations might sort of increase the urgency of our need to stop the whining, but I imagine it still happens in private. You're in the the privacy of your own home, and still the child is whining, and you need to make it stop. Oh yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter if anybody's listening. This whine, you just the whining must stop. Please stop the whining. Tell me what you need to tell me in a normal voice, and we'll discuss it rationally. One hypothesis that I, I know I've read somewhere before, before the episode, I was trying to figure out where I had read this, and I can't. I'm wondering if it was in um, uh, one of Richard Dawkins' biology books from years ago, you know, like if, if it was in The Selfish Gene or The Bl- Blind Watchmaker. Uh, but there there is an example of how, uh, of sort of the, the generational evolutionary arms race 
uh, between parents and offspring. And one one of the examples used there was about piercing bird chirps. What's happening when a chick in a bird's nest uh, chirps with this piercing tone until it gets fed or gets the attention it needs, gets the help or uh, whatever it wants from the parent? I, I know one possible way you could think about this is that the chick is threatening death. The chick is saying, I'm going to keep getting louder and higher pitched until I'm threatening to draw predators to the nest. Mm. And you must give me what I want or I'm going to kill us all. Huh. I I don't know if you can port that kind of intuition to thinking about human crying, but it makes a certain kind of intuitive sense. I, I mean, I, I couldn't begin to say that that's actually the explanation. It seems like there are a lot of factors involved there, but... Is that sort of the deep biological feeling of what's happening when, when you're a parent and your child is whining? Do you feel predators approaching? Do you feel doom looming in? <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit, maybe. I often think about uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road and uh, you know the, the, the father and uh-huh. son in, hiding in the bushes, hoping that the, uh, the villains don't discover them, the cannibals. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I was there with my son, he might start uh, whining about something. And then what am I going to do? Yeah, do I just I have to give in completely to the whining? Otherwise, the cannibals will eat us. That's why you got to carve those wood bullets. It's, that's why you got to do it. Yeah, put up a good bluff. So we know this is a topic that almost all of you are going to have some feedback on. If you're a parent, if you're, uh, you just had siblings, or you're just around kids at any point in the course of your life, uh, then you're going to want to share your thoughts on this. So hey, you can always find us at stuffthatblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find our podcast episodes, our video, our blog posts. And, uh, hey, if you want to reach out to us uh, via email, how can you do it, Joe? You can let us know your thoughts about the science of whining or your favorite personal whining and crying story at Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 